So, hello, my name's Alex Rutkeen. I'm a barrister at 39 Essex Chambers, specialising in mental capacity law. And I'm really pleased to be joined today in the shed by Helen Gilbert from the King's Fund. Um, people who've watched these before will know I always want the person I'm speaking to to introduce themselves rather than me trying to get it wrong, introducing them. So, Helen, over to you. Just, just tell me a bit about yourself, please. Hi, Alex, and thanks for inviting me. Um, so my name's Helen Gilbert. I work at the King's Fund in uh, doing policy research and analysis. Um, the King's Fund is a health policy think tank, which um, we support uh, research in, in different areas of health and care policy. We uh, support leadership development organisations as well. Um, and we also try to convene people together to think about issues around health care and uh, the poli wider policy that supports that. Um, and I guess partly we're here together because um, we hold a contract with um, and shared with the University of York, which is a, a to do some responsive policy support and research for Department of Health and Social Care. And back in 2019, um, we were commissioned to do a piece of work to look at to support the Mental Health Act review um, to look at how do clinicians make decisions. Um, at the interface of the Mental Health Act and the Mental Capacity Act. Um, and that's pretty much what we've been doing. Yeah, and I really, I really, the reason I'm, I'm so pleased you're here to talk it through because it's such an interesting and it's such an important report. And I think what would be, we'll obviously link to it, but what would be brilliant is if you could just give us a sense of, actually what really helped me is when you started looking into this, give me a sense of how you got yourself into the zone and then sort of how you went about doing this because actually it, it's that the, the very fact you've got this interface in law and then how it meshes out in reality is one of the things I want to sort of dig into so let's get into it that way you know so what did you know yeah. about it and then how did you try and get yourself into the zone so I guess my background's in mental health so um, I have some knowledge of the mental health act and I've worked in advice services and things like that so that's my background um, and I guess when we first picked up this contract, I thought, oh, I don't have a clue what I'm talking about. I'm very much out of my depth. And um, I went and talked to some practitioners as well, um, particularly over at um, the Mental Health Policy Research Unit. So connected with some people there about some of the issues. And of course, we connected as well and had a conversation. And I came out of that thinking, oh, yeah, I do understand a bit more, but really, no, I don't. <laughs> And I guess as a researcher, I'm a curious person. And part of me thought, do you know what? As I start to talk to people and as I get into this research, I'll start to build an understanding of what it really means. And I think for me, that's one of the things that's absolutely struck me of um, doing this research and speaking to people was while I thought as I listened to people's narratives and I learned about how they understand this interface, I would then have a clearer understanding myself. And I would say it's probably almost the opposite. Um, as, as I spoke to people and did the interviews, um, I would almost come off of one interview with somebody having given me a really good narrative of this is what it means, this is how we come at it, here are some examples of how you know I understand things like capacity, objection, and then I would come on to roll on to another interview someone equally confident and equally skilled who would give me almost exactly the opposite and would say oh well no this is how you understand objection and this is what you know um, understanding what treatment is so I guess it really that sort of experience also made me realize that what I'm coming into is very different understandings and and 
ultimately, while we were set to, you know, the, the research question was, um, how do people, who who is impacted by this interface question? And also how do clinicians in that space make that decision? What are the pros and cons? But what we really um, highlighted is it's, it's not the decision, you know, itself, which is the issue. It's the factors that people are just are considering about whether people are relevant for that decision. Um, so for instance, you know, uh, does the person have capacity um, to make to make you know, around that particular uh, area of care? Um, are they objecting? And also, how do we understand treatment within the context of, of uh, the Mental Health Act and the Mental Capacity Act? So I think that's kind of where we got to and, and that sort of sense of um, there's an issue before this. And I think some people have clarified, uh, classified it as a legal literacy. But underpinning that, I think, are it really highlights the fundamental differences between the two, the two acts um, and the basis on which they were developed and the reasons as well. Gosh, there's so much in there. So can I just sort of get one, one, as it were, data point? When you were talking to people with very clear, you know, clear, professional, strong ideas, sometimes we get the stereotypical suggestion that, you know, it's one discipline has a particular view or another discipline, you know, a social worker has one view, a psychiatrist has a different view. In your research, were you finding that or were you finding it was even within disciplines you had people who had, you know, this is how I approach things differently to, you know, their colleagues almost down, down the corridor? Um, so when we were on our research and, of course, we looked at we had a really sizable survey and um, we saw some trends. Um, and of course, it's not a representative um, sample, but we did speak, to, you know, we have over the data from over 600 people. So um, practitioners in this space. And we did see the trends were that um, Section 12 doctors um, uh, approved mental health professionals and um, and approved clinicians all tended to talk, uh, to move towards the Mental Health Act. And then business interest assessors uh, move towards the Mental Capacity Act in their decision making. So there are some really uh, differences of opinion in terms of which, which act is seen as preferable um, at, at this point. I think, though, that in our interviews, it highlighted that actually, even within, within professions, there's very different opinions. Um, and so one of the things we've, we, we heard um, was that actually the more training people had, particularly people who had training in, in both of the acts, um, people said that actually that was really beneficial in then helping them understand how the two acts relate to each other, the different ways of understanding them. And interestingly, they, people who had that training felt that they made different decisions from people who hadn't had that training. So I guess it sort of flags that, um, you know, the, it's it's quite likely. And a beautiful quote somebody said to me was, um, "How are you supposed to, uh, you know, how are practitioners supposed to choose an act that they've never really, they don't really use or had no training in?" And I think that's the case in some areas that people are being asked to consider, particularly in an acute hospital where majority of the staff won't have had training in the in use of the mental health act. So how are they supposed to think? Oh, actually, which of these is right? You know, they go for the thing that they're used to and is mostly supported in their organisation. Yeah. And, and no, I think I, I, I mean, sort of impressionistically from my work, I would I would entirely agree with you. But sort of carrying on the theme of, 
I mean, this ethnographic study, which is just incredibly important because so much, I mean, it really is the first time people have, you've actually looked at this as opposed to endless anecdata. So it's that bit, which I'm really sort of fascinated by. And the, the other thing you, you mentioned was the extent to which you were, you, the, the sense that people had that they were just these two very different bits, two very different things. And I just, be really helpful for me to get a sense of almost your impression of what people felt you know, obviously you can't sort of speak across the piece, but, you know, the feeling about the MCA versus, as it were, the feeling about the Mental Health Act, because as you said, they're these two different, you know. Yeah, um, I guess you always get drawn in those feelings, you get drawn to the extremes. I guess, I mean, a very common, a very common, and particularly in, so we collected a lot of data as part of the survey, including quite a lot of free text data as well. So people just writing what they thought of, of um, and their, their sort of experiences. Um, and, uh, you know, the gut feeling for many people around the Mental Health Act is it is an inherent, it's inherently restricted. It is there to, you know, it is one of the only ways the state takes away people's rights in that way. So the idea that you would then use it, you know, for people, uh, you know, in a sort of considering how it could be least restrictive sort of runs quite counter to the whole to the whole purpose of you know the act is there um, to make those decisions for people in that way um, and I think within the mental health community and people from you know with that training there was almost the same you know the same sort of antithesis towards the mental capacity act as some people said you know well it's got no it, you know, no safeguards it, it's it's not a piece of legis it's got no real thinking around it you know it, it it's it was a not a good piece of legislation so there's that sort of polarity there um about how these two acts are seen uh, and the purposes they serve um yeah so it's super interesting isn't it i mean you've still got if you've still got people you know 15 years after the mental capacity act coming in the, one of the things you are picking up is a very strong thing, at least among some people, that they just really don't like this legislation, which is yeah. sort of relatively challenging if you're then trying to tell people that these, these two things are supposed in some circumstances, but on an equal plane in terms of, for instance, you know, a genuine choice you could make between the two. Yeah, and I guess there's an element there that the Mental, capacity, the mental Health Act, you know, it, it's there to serve a set purpose. It's to yeah. provide a framework around that treatment and, and you know, around admission and treatment. Um, whereas the Mental Capacity Act, you know, it covers the whole of our lives in, in different, you know, it, it's a broad piece of legislation and it, it's, uh, you know, in some ways it's, it allows for co-creation of what, what that looks like for individuals. So they, you know, the context in which they, they sit is very, very different. And just... One other, I mean, you, you mentioned objection, because, and this is just one of the, you know, we've got capacity sort of not shared understandings, capacity for me leapt out of the report. And the other bit was, was the objection aspect. And I just wonder whether you could speak a bit about, you know, what, what your findings were in terms of how people were perceiving what an objection was, because that's still you know, going to be the dividing line going forwards under the mm -hmm. LPS, at least for the time being. And a sort of your sense of, you know, how that's going to pan out. Um, let me think. So, so I guess some of the examples people use of objection is, I, you know, is is whether somebody is what does objection actually mean? What are they objecting to? Um, 
and, and whether that, you know, the timeliness of the objection. So some of the examples pe people made, made were seeing somebody who was objecting some aspect of care, you know, I don't want my medication, and making a judgment of like, you know, is that, is that objection, that person saying, I don't want medication, right, you know, this is objection. Or is it that at this time in perfect point in time, it might not be convenient to have the medication. I'm doing something else, you know. So there were sort of lots of different things around, you know, is it real objection? Um, I think the really interesting one for me is um, the notion of capacity and objection. Mm -hmm. So one of the questions, almost a tautology people drew, uh, drew up, was that, well, if somebody has, you know, the notion that in order to object, you have to, or making an active choice, you're saying, I don't want to do that, or, I don't want to be involved in that. Um, and in order to do that, you have capacity, you're making that decision. So if you lack capacity, can you actually object so people were saying, well, if the person lacks capacity, objection, you know, is it really, is the person really objecting? What are they objecting to? Do they really know what they're making that decision? So it, it sort of also almost undermines the whole premise of the interface in some ways where people are saying, you know, if you don't have capacity, you know, the, the notion that you could object to something is, is questionable, really. Which is just fascinating, isn't it? Because in other contexts, I mean, the Court of Protection spent years and years and years explaining the mere fact you don't have capacity to make a decision doesn't mean your wishes and feelings aren't relevant. Mm. So, you know, in mm. that zone, the idea that, well, you're going to ignore the wishes and feelings because the person doesn't have capacity is considered kind of legally off beam entirely. And then this, this zone, you've got, as you say, people trying to, at one level, understandably going, I'm trying to work out what this person's actually doing. Yeah. And that's gets quite deep quite quickly doesn't it yeah and I guess in some ways you know we're having a, a a legal argument and I think this is one of the things we saw from the research is that you know there's a framework here a legal framework which or frameworks which exists to um, protect the person and and provide a sort of overarching framework for the care but the reality is a lot of the decisions are being made are practical they're about this person needs care they need treatments you know we need to we need some level of uh, protection when, and things like that. And so sometimes, you know, the legal context and, you know, what's the framework that's best set for this sort of becomes, you know, it's not the driving factor. It's about actually which of these allows us to provide the care we think this person needs in yeah, this moment. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's an incredibly important point in terms of rolling forwards. And I just sort of, I, this is probably a wildly unfair question. And if it is, tell me. No, I mean, based on, based on your, the, the work you've done, you know, do you think, what, what single thing do you think would be most important in terms of making, you know, changes, which mean, for instance, you identified in your report, people are routinely, you were concerned about being unlawfully deprived of their liberty because people not understanding. I mean, based on your understanding from the, you know, discussions with practitioners, the survey, you know, what do you think could mostly usefully be done? I mean, it may not even be law reform in terms of making sure that, you know, this sort of stuff is, well, actually, at the end of the day, causing less problems for fewer problems for practitioners, but actually, at the end of the day, fewer problems for the individuals caught up. And you know, your report from the front line, what would you? Yeah. So I do think, you know, I think in some ways, like, there's a bigger question about 
the nature of the legislation and what is the right direction to go. But I think from what we've done and from what we found, actually, there's quite a lot that could happen. And it's all it's all practical things. It's things like, you know, so I was really impressed by some of the audit work that's going on out there, just looking at actually what does practice look like? You know, what are we doing? Where are the examples of where we've got problems and how can we put in place um, actions that can change that? Um, both in, and I guess there's some sort of, uh, particularly some areas like acute hospitals, you know, it's almost, you know, the Mental Capacity Act is, is um, you know, that's the, that's the most commonly used uh, framework in that space. But actually, what would it mean to, to support people with use of the Mental, mental Health Act in, those, in that area? So one of the things is um, some hospitals have got the liaison psychiatry and hospitals which are able to use their liaison psychiatry across the hospital, not just in A&E. Um, again, they can use those skills, that knowledge to be able to inform decisions for all of the patients across the hospital. So I think putting in place some of those, you know, expanding some of that capacity, starting to think about some of those audit questions. I guess the other thing for me is that you know, for quite a lot of the interviews, things came up, particularly with uh, Section 12 doctors, AMPs going into places where, um, you know, with one, there was blanket rules. I think it's time we really reviewed those, you know, uh, what is the role of places like the Care Quality Commission? You know, they're going into trusts, going into organisations. If everybody says we don't use this at all, I think there's a question about well, why? Why is there a, a blanket decision here amongst whether it's amongst professional groups or whether it's amongst a, um, an organisation? Um, so there's that element. And I think, again, there was this sense that when we spoke to people and interviewed them, they were saying, OK, well, I went into this place to, you know, somebody had asked me to do X number of mental capacity or DOLS assessments. And actually, five of those people really didn't meet the criteria they needed a Mental Health Act assessment. And on top of that, we've got, you know, I noticed all these people, everybody under, everybody appears to be under the Mental Capacity Act, probably rightly or wrongly. So we think it's some of those sort of elements starting to unpick these. Uh, what, how does legislation actually get, uh, how does it translate into practice? And what can we do? to um, what can we do to support people to use it appropriately and there are so many different areas I think and it's it's different whether it's in um, I mean you know yourself but these questions come up about you know what is the legal uh, framework in which we can convey people um, what is the legal frameworks in which we can hold people in A&E and these sort of different places that uh, questions come up I think there are an opportunity for some practical, you know, some practical work to think about actually how do we put that, you know, how do we put the legislation into practice to support people, uh, both staff and patients safely. Brilliant. Well, thank you, Helen. We're, we're basically out of time, but I did just, I'm really grateful for you, to you for taking the time to, to expand on the report and I, we'll put a link to it on it because it's, Thank you. I can't emphasize how important it is as the first piece of work, but anyone has actually sat down and really looked at it. And at one level, it is incredibly alarming, I have to say. Um, I read it with a deep sense of, um, I mean, kind of, in a way, reinforcing things I was afraid of. And, and mm -hmm. oh my God. And then another, but one of the reasons I wanted to kind of get that sort of think about with you, that last question I just answer, asked you is, is to then try and think of actually, well, let's not just get utterly depressed. You know, here are things we can do. Mm -hmm. And I really like that focus on practicality. 
So brilliant. Thank you so much, Helen, for your time. Um, thank you. And, uh, thank you, everybody, for watching. Thank you very much.